0: Well, it's uh, good to see you guys. hope you're having a good day. No one's having a good day, okay? (laughs) We're going to finish, at least certainly my intent, we're going to finish uh, chapter 13 today, so um, I think everyone, uh, as I'm looking around, everyone has one of these, I believe, so... um, Let's just real quickly review what is happening here. Chapter 12, 13 and 14 are a unit in this letter, this book of 1 Corinthians, and my own understanding of this is it's dealing with the larger issue of spirituality or spiritual maturity or what it means to be to be spiritual. And we said at the beginning of chapter 12, it begins with a confession of faith. That Jesus is Lord. It continues with a proper understanding of spiritual gifts and continues then with uh, an understanding that the body of Christ is a living organism. Uh, Remember, the church is both an organism and an an organization, and we talked about that. But it's gifted people who are uh, given ministries to accomplish in the church for the glory of God the Father. And then chapter 13 that the mark of spiritual maturity, the mark of spirituality, if you will, is love. And as he said in the beginning of chapter thirteen, if you if you exercise all the gifts and don't have love, it's just noise. And it's 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 accomplishing nothing. So what is it? What is love? And that's where we are now in verses four through seven. And we are basically done. Uh, if, if you're looking at this handout that I gave you, we're basically down to the very last item, which is verse 7. Now, um, each one of those qualities that is listed in verse 7 is is, in a sense, a summary. But I'm going to try to translate it a little differently. <clears throat> always bears with people, always trusts or believes people, always hopes and always endures. In other words, instead of some of your translations, and it depends on which one you're using, but has often all things, I think probably that's what most of yours has, which is is fine, but the stress is the all-encompassing nature, the all-encompassing dimensions of love. It knows no limits. Um, if you look at the handout, let me, not that you can't read, but let me read it and follow along if you could. Verse 7 sums up and is characterized by the word always, a superior translation might my view than all things. Despite the view of the Corinthians that all things are lawful, Christian love still always bears, always endures, always hangs in there with people. Always, I'm, I'm really embellishing, I'm really fleshing this out. Always sees the potential in people, always hangs tough with people, that's love. Always trusts or believes, but always trusts people until they give you a reason not to trust them. I used to tell my children when I was raising them, uh, Jonathan, Joanna, I will always trust you until you give me a reason not to trust you. And in a sense, that's that's what he's saying here. If you love someone, part of that love, part of the dimension of that love is you trust them. Um, if we can turn that into a real negative, when a, when a man violates his his covenant vows to his wife and commits adultery, It is going to take him a long time to regain his wife's trust. A very long time. Because when he said, I do, to her and she said, I do, to him, that was a commitment, a covenant commitment. And so when a man, well, or a woman, uh, we're men, that's why I chose just the man. But when that's violated, oh, my goodness, that takes a long time to rebuild that. It can be rebuilt by God's grace. That's kind of what he's saying by this. And then the next one is always hopes. Always hopes for the best in people in relationships and events. Again, even if you're disappointed, you still will hope. And then finally, always endures, always perseveres, uh, even if there is repeated disappointment. It is a... Uh, That's an amazing verse to to let sink deep into your soul and into your heart. Um, But it's uh, it's at the same time, when you read this as a conclusion of that paragraph, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7, you see the sense this is supernatural. This is not something that we normally exhibit or manifest or even at times desire to do. So um, I'm not sure what else to say about verses 4 through 7. I I wanted to finish uh, this last week, but we just ran out of time. Um, You've had a lot of time with us. We spent a part of two weeks ago, all of last week, and now the first few minutes of this week. We spent a lot of time on these these verses, verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. And I, I want to do that because I think this is such a a very decisive and very important passage of God's Word. But it's time to leave it, unless you have questions or comments or thoughts. one question. Absolutely.
1: How does this impact
2: the person that, to whom this love is directed, would you say, from their spiritual growth point of view? Like you've got sort of an embryonic Christian, you know, just starting, mm-hmm. and, and you know him and you, communicate the fact that you really do you believe right, him and right. you trust him and right. have you seen that I mean there's oh a lot my of kids my goodness. That you, yes. you know, yeah. well I think
0: know. this this genuine um, unfakeable yeah. love which is another way of putting this um, it is life changing in relationships when when you exhibit that when you show that when you uh, um, really manifest it to someone, a young believer. And actually, Fred, I mean an unbeliever, someone who is not uh, in, in walking in faith with, with the Lord. Um, they see someone who really loves this way. They are seeing something supernatural. They can't explain it. And the Bible says, uh, both in, in terms of its narrative stories as well as in the teaching, that that is often uh, one of the means God will use to bring somebody to faith. They will see that. I can't explain it. Why? Why are you caring for me? Why, why do you care what I think, do, feel? Why you care that I'm 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 struggling with this? Well, the answer is because I love you in Christ. I mean, that's the. It's such a transformational attribute, and it's it's the attribute that God shows. You know, John three sixteen. For God so loved. It's the word that's used here. The world. I mean, it's that other-centered, sacrificial, I'm-not-thinking-of-myself love, which is not normal for us as, as human beings. But when someone sees that, it I think it's one of the greatest evidences of um, of the truth of biblical Christianity, is genuine love. Lived consistently, manifested forthrightly in the life. So it helps in those who have just come to faith. They really see this is genuine, This this... It's just really what what's going on in, in, in this this body of believers, but I think it also can be like a magnet where it draws people to the Savior. Which I've told you this story before, uh, and I'll, I'll mention it here again because not everyone's always here to hear these same stories. But in the first century, um, uh, the, the Roman Empire, the cities in the Roman Empire were dumbfounded by Christians. They simply couldn't understand them. And we have we have some records. I mean, like I I've said, uh, you know, it was very typical in uh, densely populated areas when disease, they would call them the plague, came. Everybody would run for the hills. That's where that phrase came from. They would literally leave the city until it subsided. But Christians stayed, and Christians cared for the sick. Um, when they, Rome, the Greco-Roman world practiced uh, infanticide, it was horrible practice, but if there was a child that was diseased or sick, they'd, they'd literally take it out the mountains and die from exposure. Christians would rescue them. And everybody said, what are you doing this for? Well, the love of God constrains us, as Paul says. We see human beings the way God sees human beings, of, as image bearers of him, They're of worth or value. He died for... So we care for life. In that book I've mentioned, uh, Under the Influence, uh, The Impact of Christianity on Civilization, a historian's name is Alvin Schmidt. What he documents for 2,000 years is the enormous change Christianity has made to culture. The phenomenal, it's a change agent, to use the phrase we use in the 21st century. And I just read, I just read an article. It was in Christianity Today. I just read an article. It's, it's a result of research of a sociologist at the University of North Carolina and what he has studied is the impact that missions had in Africa. And he studied the areas where Protestant missionaries planted stations and where they weren't planted. And the difference is unbelievable. And I mean, what he's, he's documenting the impact that Christianity had in areas of Africa. And he compares, for example, in one area in Ghana in the country next door, Togo, Ghana is a well-educated, a major university, schools, bookstores, literacy rate is very high. Togo, right next door, which was a French colony, where Christians were not able to be, only the Roman Catholic hierarchy, but there was no active mission to the difference between those countries. How do you explain it? Well, it's geography. No, that doesn't work because it's exactly the same. Well, it's climate. No, it's not that because it's exactly the same. And it's, it's an amazing, and he's published this in the American Political Science Review. So it, it, must, it passed the muster of, of, you know, of, of significant historical and, and intellectual rigors of research. And it's really, it's, it's, it's creating a little bit of a bombshell in the intellectual world right now. Because he's giving documentation that biblical Christianity had a significant impact. Which when you study history, you see the evidence of that everywhere. I'm way beyond your question. But it is this, this this is what's motivating people. Why do you care for a child that was thrown out in the woods to die? Because they bear the image of God. They're of worth and value. Life's important to me as a Christian. And it's those kinds of things that are just... uh, And today we still see... I don't mean this as a political statement, because it can be very quickly a political issue. But why, why do... Why do people genuinely care about the abortion issue? Again, leaving the politics out of it. Why are some people passionately concerned about the abortion issue? Because they said that's life. And life's valuable to God. And if life's valuable to God, it's valuable to me. It says something about a civilization when they kill 54 million babies in the womb. That says something. It's, it's something that I should try to be a part of, of turning around. And so... Uh, they're the kinds of things that you're motivated by and you see things and understand things now the way God sees things and the way God understands things. And that's different. You're different. And this this quality, if you will, this attribute of life is a transformational attribute. It really is. You know, when you look
1: at verse 7, I mean, it, it, there's a some personal consequence, I would think, mm-hmm. for bearing all things or always believing and always hoping. Um, but as you just said, well, there's personal consequence. There's a bigger purpose mm-hmm. in all of this, it seems. But, I mean, you wonder if, if Paul could have even imagined 21st century America no. when he wrote a verse like this. <laughs> yeah. And You know, to always bear things that people do to you or to always believe mm-hmm. Makes you a very susceptible, That's potentially right. susceptible, vulnerable person to be taken advantage of and,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, you know whether it's in close relationships or you're exhibiting this or in a workplace or whatever, but you're opening yourself up to be hurt there's a risk you'll get hurt because people people do not always instinctively or impulsively respond to the love. That you're showing them. They just do the opposite. They push you away. Or they hurt you. Or, or they make fun of you. Or you know, all the many, many things that can be uh, part of a response.
2: That's what happened yeah. to my mother-in-law. I mean, my wife's mother, uh, 20, 24 years of it, she just disdained our love for her. It mm. helped her mow the grass, shovel the driveway, or whatever it was to be. And it, it was unbelievable. I mean, she would say it made her sick, mm. our love for her. Goodness. Oh, yeah. And then she got cancer, mm. and then it um, got so bad that she, they said that she couldn't go back home. Well, we moved in with her to help her because she would have to go to hospice. Either. She would turn up the place upside down with her head. And uh, so we moved in with her, and that changed it. We were there with her for a month. We moved out of her house. Moved in with her. I was at her bedside every every in the night, day. My wife was, but when I couldn't be there, and that did the difference. That was mm. the difference that she found faith. Mm. Right the the last week she lived, but it was the roughest twenty five years or twenty four years. Unbelievable.
0: Mm. Mm. That is a great. That is a great illustration, though, of what yeah. a persistent. Demonstration of this quality of life can do, both in terms of how somebody can respond to it, but how ultimately it can be used by the Spirit of God to bring salvation.
1: So, so can, I ask, can I ask you a question? Yeah. So, you look back on the yeah. was it, 25 years? Was it? worth it? Uh,
2: yeah, you know, I, I get to. Well, I get to know her more. I think, in her way, in way, you know, I got built her, but. She, I think she would, you know, we were there all the time with her for that last month. And, and I think she, if in our marriage, if we were been over there all the time, you know, I mean, you was supposed to leave your father and mother, you know, clean, you know, and, and she would have been different. We can't, you know, we have, we have our own lives, you know, and, and uh, we did everything. We, we tried to do everything, though. It was, uh, if my wife was here, she would say the same thing. But then that last month we moved in with her, I mean, we were there 24 hours a day, you know, she changed. And then she knew that we were there to help her, really, for their cancer, because she wasn't a... I think her attorney said, do you, do you know what Tom and Denise were doing for you? I mean, you, you, have, you would have gone to a hospice, you know? Do you really, do you really know that they love you? And she just kind of, you know, the attorney said that to her, you know? And so, without them, you would have to go into a hospice. I mean, you would not like that. And then she just started to turn. Mm-hmm
0: but you're in a way to uh, Tom you're, you're demonstrating that there is often a personal cost uh-huh. to exhibiting this quality uh-huh. of life that um, from eternity's perspective you can see it's worth it uh-huh. but in those yeah. days weeks months years in which you're, you're living uh, with that kind of a pushback from someone that's hostile and brutal and unkind rude and all that uh, that's very very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, we there is there's a really good illustration of this in, in my wife's life. Um, I guess, I'm not sure if I've told you this or not, but up the door, uh, three doors from our house is uh, we live in a cul de sac. Is a uh, uh, she's 72 years old. She has lived there all the time we've lived there, which is 32 years, and. Um, her mother and her lived in that house I don't know how many decades, Good, good chunk of, of their lives. Her mother died, and so she's in this alone, and she's retired. Um, very difficult woman. I mean, an absolutely horrible woman to be around. My kids habitually stayed away from her house when they were little. They didn't play there. I mean, she's just she's awful and so uh she's also uh, she has emphysema She smoked all her life uh now it doesn't smoke them anymore but she's and she's very she's not well at all, and she carries on the oxygen tank with you know all those things that go with something that's debilitating and so four years now it's four and a half years ago uh or now it's probably almost five actually uh, my wife um uh, you know it's more it's six it's six years I keep pushing it back because it seems like this has been a part of our life for so long, but anyway. Peggy observed every Friday afternoon a taxi would pull up to her house and she'd get in and then about an hour and a half later a taxi would come back and uh, she was getting her groceries Uh, because she doesn't have an automobile. So my wife announced at dinner, my kids were all there and my wife announced for dinner, I'm going to call her and uh, ask her if every Friday I can take her to the grocery store. And the ordained minister in the house said, What do you want to do that for? What? Uh, you know, was just, I, I mean, that was honestly, and I say this in all honesty and with great transparency before God, that never crossed my mind to do that. Never. But but Peggy said, she he, her response was, She needs to see the love of Jesus Christ. So after I crawled out from under the table and... You know, it was just an amazing thing. And she has really, um, Peggy did that. And uh, when she called her, she said, okay, be here at three, and hung up. Again, you can just, I said, oh, my goodness, honey. Are you sure you want to do this? But, uh, so I've, I've taken her a number of times. She is unbelievable. But you would not believe how much she's mellowed. Now, I, she, As far as I know and as far as Peggy knows, she has not put her faith in Christ. Maybe her Bible, tracks, pray, she calls Peggy four, five, six times a, a year for a prayer request. Oh, wow. Which, you know, it's it's always disconnect. You know, you you don't pray, but you want us to pray. You you're, don't read the Bible. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's the way it is. But if she comes to faith in Christ, it's going to be for one reason. My wife treated her according to these. And I mean, it, well, the kids are gone, they're married and everything now. But, it's, it's really kind of a family project for Peggy and me. And this, this lady is just, she is unbelievable. So hard. That's maybe the best word. She is so hard. Life's been hard to her. She's had a hard life. Um, she really has in so many ways. And, and yet there's a mellowing. I mean, the, the, the way she talks, uh, the things that she talks calls to Peggy, calls Peggy up to pray about and so on. Um, and that's just, that's what it's all about. That's what Paul's saying here. And it's those, it are those kinds of things, it seems to me, where this quality of life is really tested. Because instinctively, who wants to do that for this lady? Who wants to do, why would you do that? And nobody, nobody in the neighborhood understands why Peggy's doing that. At, at three or four, the neighbor says, why do you do that? Great opportunity for her to just give a testimony. Because Jesus wants me to love people. Mm-hmm. And it's important that uh, that she, I'm trying not to use her name, because I don't want you to go to my neighborhood and check out who this is.
1: <laughs> we'll just be there at I'll 3 o'clock good. and see. I was
2: going to say, one of the things that I learned that, um, as we try to walk this out, too, uh, I, had, I had to learn the hard way that it really wasn't about me. Because I've had I guys down the prison, i court a lot of times, a lot of hours, a lot of gas going <clears throat> down there, a lot of time, and end up uh, kind of getting pushed to the side when they released, And first time it happened to me, I mean, that was that was hard, and I really learned that it just it can't be about me. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm really doing this for the reasons I'm supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if somebody turns or somebody um, turns away from me or whatever they do, chew me out or yell at me, or, which I've had a few. Just, and when I got past that that was that was the biggest thing Because you when you walk this
0: you can you do open yourself up you can kind of stick your chin out there oh there's I no, no doubt about that when I got into ministry which is we were still in Pennsylvania and my mentor said to me Jim you will learn and you've got to learn this as quickly as you can your business is not to change people that's God's business your business is just be faithful and so if you never ever see anyone change that doesn't mean that you take that on your shoulders. I mean, and you know, what didn't I do right? What didn't I, What did I do wrong? Well, we do have to ask some of those questions sometimes. But basically, love is as he's described, not expecting a, a result necessarily. You can't expect the result. You think that's going to happen. You pray that that will happen, that someone will come to faith, but that doesn't always happen.
2: That's the definition of insanity. They said keep repeating, looking for a
0: different result. But are yeah. kind of doing that. <laughs> yeah. Except when it comes to the spiritual, supernatural world. Yeah, that, in terms of strategic, tactical stuff, insanity is you keep trying the same thing, expecting a different result. But in, in this, uh, the result is not up to you. <coughs> and that, that, to me, I, I mean, I've been in ministry a good part of my adult life. But that, to me, it's absolutely freeing. Because if not, you constantly take upon your shoulders all that you see happening in people's lives, and you can't do that. You you absolutely cannot do that. You absolutely burn out, wear out, and throw the towel, and you can't do that, um, it seems to me. Let's conclude the chapter. I, I'm going, to, if you don't mind, I mean, we're, we're, gonna, we're done with this sheet. I mean, there's some other stuff I've written there, but I, I don't want to, I really don't want to get into this issue. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in the larger picture. But 8 through 13 builds off of that last statement, which really introduces chapter, uh, verse 8, excuse me. Love never fails. Now, as you see from the rest of this paragraph through the end of the chapter, verse 13, love never fails. And what he means by that is in terms of time. Let's put it another way. As he's going to conclude, love is eternal. Because love does not fail. Because that is an attribute of God. Now, you have to remember why he does what he does in verse 8 and 9 and so on. Again, remember he is comparing love as an attribute or quality of life to the spiritual gifts, which they are exalting, the Corinthians are exalting. And they're seeking after the. Remember, as we looked at the end of verse, uh, chapter 12, they're seeking the prominent ones that draw attention to them. And Paul says, knock that off. Now, what he does is he says, okay, I want to compare love to these gifts that you guys are seeking. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they'll cease. If there's knowledge, it'll be done away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, Then, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Again, as with this whole chapter, it's very poetic. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a literary masterpiece. But here is his point. And uh, I you know, have all this on PowerPoint slides. So this is a slide, and, and I wanna, I'm i going to write this on the board, a part of it. Because there is an issue here that people always raise. Well, he's saying something about tongue ceasing, and they camp on that and say, okay, it gets into the tongues debate. Let's stay away from that for now. I don't want to get into it, because then you lose the main point that he's making in this passage. And this is the, this is the point he's making. Somebody already has the pen out. It's in the form of a syllogism. Now you all know what that means, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh. A syllogism is a is a form of logic that was developed by Aristotle. So he's writing to Greeks, so he would use that. He's just meeting them on their own turf, and he's making a point. You make two points, and then you draw a conclusion. So here's what he's saying in this passage, and if we miss this and start getting <coughs> into a debate of when tongues ends, which we can do, we miss the point. So first thing, the, the first premise, if you will, and I'm just going to write this up here. Eternal, complete things are superior to transitory partial things now that's not hard to understand eternal complete things anything that's eternal anything that's complete is just by its very nature Superior to things that are transitory. What's transitory mean? It passes away. Or partial, it's not complete. That's kind of an obvious statement. But it has a second premise to it. Love is an eternal, complete, Attribute. Just describe it in the whole chapter up to this point. That love is eternal. Love never (coughs) fails. And it's complete. I forgot the P. So, what do you think this conclusion is going to be? Remember these three dots like this in geometry? What does that mean? Therefore.
1: Therefore. Love is superior. What? Love is superior. Love is superior.
0: Again, I wrote that very quickly and sloppily. Now you have to understand again why he's doing it this way. The Corinthians are seeking the prominent, self-elevating gifts that draw attention to themselves. And Paul is saying, don't do that. That is not the purpose of the gifts. Back to chapter 12. Chapter 13 is adding another element of what is so central and so important Spiritual quality of life, the ability to speak in tongues, Mm-mm. the ability to prophesy, which in, in much, much of First Corinthians is more to declare, to preach, to proclaim revealed truth, or special knowledge. We, well, they're all important, they are gifts, but far superior to that is the quality of life called love. And he has just shown us in a a very poetic and beautiful passage what the quality of love looks like. And then he adds, verse 8, love never fails. And he builds the case that eternal, complete attributes, things of life are far superior to transitory partial things. Because transitory means it's temporary, it's passing away. Partial means... It's not complete. It, you don't have the whole thing. Well, obviously, these things are that are eternal and complete. They're the things that are associated with God. Love is an eternal, complete attribute. It's one of the attributes of God. It's an attribute that's been described in detail in this chapter. Therefore, love is superior. So what does he want them to pursue? What does he want them to seek? Prominent gifts that will exalt themselves? No. Again, it's not that the gifts aren't important, but nowhere in the Bible does it command us to seek the gift of tongues. You will not find that that is not a command in the Scriptures. Nowhere in the Bible are you commanded to seek the gift of prophecy. You are to understand what your spiritual enablement is, but you're you're never commanded to, to seek it. But you are commanded to seek love. You are commanded. Here it is. And so he's saying something to us that is, is relevant in 2014 as it was in AD 55 when he wrote this. A superior quality of life is what he has described in this chapter. Easy? No. But it is it is the attribute of God that He enables us to exhibit as well. The love and communion that the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, have enjoyed for all eternity, we can exhibit and share. Why? <clears throat> How? The reason? Because it's the most important quality of us to exhibit in our interpersonal relationships with people because that is what Jesus exhibited to us. That's why the cross in a couple of weeks we'll, we'll remember Easter, a Good Friday and then Easter and that you can't you can't go through a weekend like that and not come up sometime with the phrase the love of God which is why he did this okay? What's in it for us? That's a very Corinthian question to ask. <laughs> well, um, I don't, honestly, I don't think that's the right question to answer, and I, know, I think I know why you're asking it. The, the, the way to answer that question is if that's the question you're asking, you're asking the wrong question. <laughs> because to exhibit that kind of love is, I am not expecting to get anything from myself. Other than, I mean, other than, and that this is, it it sounds real spiritual, but it it, it is actually the truth. Other than, one, I'm commanded to exhibit this quality. But it is the most freeing quality that God enables us by his spirit. Because this is a supernatural quality. You can't live this. I don't want to live like this. But I do know that in my own life, my own personal life, to learn what this means... And to allow God's Spirit to develop it in my life is the most one of the most freeing things that's been a part of my life. my father, my father and I did not get along most of my life. Until 1973. I mean that's when I got straightened out with the Lord. But I my I my father and I just had a terrible relationship. And I didn't want to do this. But the the more I was, you know, as I got straightened out with God and all that. He just kept impressing upon me, you've got to make it right with your dad. And I didn't want to do it. I resisted it. I kept putting it off. Well, maybe next weekend. Because we were living in Allentown, Pennsylvania. I was in graduate school, and my dad and mom still living in their late 80s in Lancaster. About 80 miles away. And so finally, finally I said, okay, Lord, I'll do it. So I called dad and said, I'm coming down this weekend. Let's talk. And oh my goodness, that was... (laughs) But it started started something with my dad that now, I mean, my dad and I I have a great relationship with my dad. I'll see him in a couple of months. I hug him and kiss him. When I was 20 years old, there was no way that was gonna happen from his perspective or from my perspective. But as God enabled me to love my father with these kinds of qualities, it, it became freeing in our relationship. And that's true, for, that's true in any area of life. A, a boss <coughs> who is to love his employees. That doesn't mean you don't hold them accountable. That's not what it means. Because remember what we read in verse 6. Love rejoices in righteousness and truth. So if someone's lying or misrepresenting truth or being deceptive, you call them to account. That's a loving thing to do. It's not love to just let people do whatever they want if they're accountable to you. That's not love. That's anarchy. That's stupidity. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm getting... So in, in, it, it is... It's something that in one sense, Fred, you don't do it with the intent I'm going to get something out of this deal. But you see the supernatural nature, nature of it that it is a very freeing thing. Love frees you from bitterness, which is like a cancer. Love frees you from hatred, which is binding and enslaving. Um, anyway, okay. Are you saying
2: that you were a rebellious young lad before you? Uh...
0: Well, uh, well, yeah. I'm curious uh, well, about sure. Well, that's not any. Why? Why is that important? It's uh, yeah. <laughs> not important. You get <laughs> well, you, you, my, you know, my father, you know, my our, my name, Ekman. Ekman is German. My father was a German, tough old German. His father was a tough old, incredible. I learned from my dad that. <laughs> phenomenal work ethic. But my dad was uh, just a typical German, no emotion, no, no communicating of love and care. He just said, well, I'm feeding you and giving you a place to sleep. That's enough, isn't it? Okay. All right, dad. <laughs> but that was, and, and he didn't say that in so many ways, but that's exactly, that's how he, that's how he was. Yeah. Uh, and the, the Lord really got a hold of my dad late in life, late in his life. But uh, I've seen the same thing with him, incredible mellowing. Now, Dad's 89. He's not well, and you know, that's just the nature of what happens. But for about, to, for about 20 years, Dad has walked with the Lord, and it's, uh, it's really been something to see how God can even transfer an old, tough German with the love of Christ.
2: When
0: you're, was he a Christian when you were, I see, you 20, you like, this way, but at, at that time was he? Did he no. A Christian? no, no, no. no. To... <clears throat> and I, and I was first born, which uh, that has its advantages, but also has its disadvantages. Um, so, dad, dad is with my sister, uh, my youngest sister, who's 20 years younger than I. The way she was raised compared to the way I was really different. I mean, it's a very different, it's like different universes. Right? So that's just that's that's wonderful. All right, now um, I, I want to leave Chapter Thirteen um, and, and get into Chapter Fourteen, this last chapter on this whole issue of spirituality and and uh, the things that have been a part of that. Any final questions on Chapter Thirteen before we leave it? That was really good. A rich section, isn't it? Well, thank you. I'm glad. Um, Chapter 14. If you're following in your uh, notes, it's on page 19. Oh, yes, Mark, please.
2: The last verse of the chapter 15 talks about faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. So how how can love be
1: more more important than faith in Christ, or is not referring to faith in Christ?
0: I think he's t- talking about that in terms of, uh, and the key there is uh, is the word abide, uh, which is the, in New American Senate, it's how they translate that word. Uh, Mark... Um, When Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom, which then uh, becomes the eternal state, hope will no longer be a functioning quality of life. It will be a realized hope. Do you understand what I mean by that? Faith is the same thing. When, When Christ returns and you get your glorified resurrected body, and you live now eternally and walk with him, although faith will be a dimension for the most part, Him, Jesus, and and the Father, and the Spirit as an object of your faith will be no longer a major operative part of your life because they are with you. You are walking with them personally. But love is an eternal, enduring attribute, even into the eternal state. That's what he's making. That's what he's saying. So his love
2: being like right now
0: means like in turn. That's correct. And that's that's why I phrased, and that's what he's in effect doing, he's framing this logical syllogism that love is an eternal, complete attribute. And the eternal completeness is what he's been describing. Whereas um, the things that they were seeking, tongues, prophecy, etc those things are partial. And they're, they're going to be done away with. And it's the same way with faith and hope. Faith and hope will be fully realized in the eternal state, but love will continue. That's, does that answer your question, then? Now, chapter 14, um, he introduces it with a command that connects us with chapter 13, pursue love. Okay. Yet, earnestly desire spiritual things, especially that you may prophesy. All right, now let's make sure we understand what he's doing here. He has just given a significantly long discourse on the quality of love, which is far superior to the gifts. But now he comes back to the gifts issue. And he said, if you're going to talk about prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, I am asking you to pursue that which edifies people. That you may prophesy. And he compares it with tongue. Now remember, they are seeking prominent gifts that exalt themselves and, and so on. He's trying to put it in perspective. Now, listen to these words. I'm going to read a couple of of these verses. I'm going to read 1 through 5. Well, I've already read 1, so I'm going to read 2 through 5. Just listen to these words and if you have a Bible follow along. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands. But his spirit, he speaks mysteries. But to one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. One who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets that the church may receive edifying. What's the key word in those verses? Edify. You see it both as a noun, edification, and as a verb edifies. It's the most important word. What does it mean?
2: Lift up, encourage.
0: I'm going to erase this fantastic (laughs) piece of writing. (coughs) Woody is probably the only one who really understood it. terms of being able to read it. Because I've seen Woody's writing. No. <laughs> that's good. Where's
2: that love? <laughs> <laughs> Woody, <laughs> that's called loving humor. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't work with my wife. <laughs> yeah, right. Terry, <laughs> what did you say? Uh, encourage. Uh,
0: lift up. He nice. used the word "build up." Yeah. Anything else? In terms. Of what edification means? Teach. That could be an example. Encourage, build up yourself. Church. Church. The, church. the church. Others. In the church. So what is he? What is he doing? He's comparing. These two gifts, these for some reason, th- some reason this must have been a big deal in the Corinthian church in the first century. <clears throat> Gift of tongues, ability to prophesy, now that's in a verb form, prophesy. Okay, that's why. Um, do both of these edify? The answer is yes. You're with me, aren't you? Is everybody with me? Tongues, who's edified? Yourself. Prophecy. If you prophesy, you proclaim revealed truth, who's being edified? Others. Now, tongues can edify others if what happens? If it's interpreted. But in and of itself, all that's happening is you're edifying yourself. You're encouraging, you're building up yourself. So if you follow what he... And again, because he does not accept at the very end, he doesn't talk about interpretation. And this is apparently what was going on. People wanted to speak in tongues, and they spoke in tongues whether it was a genuine gift or not, but they spoke in tongues and they felt good about themselves and they were edifying themselves and the warm fuzzies were just gooing out of their spiritual life. That's a horrible way to, I'm trying to really emphasize it. What did Paul say to that? That's an abuse of the gift.
1: prophecies, the superiority of prophecy over tongues. Mm -hmm.
0: Exactly. Because of what we're putting here. The prophesy others will be built up and encouraged. Because remember, as, as we've talked, this is to proclaim truth that's already revealed. And that edifies, that builds up, that encourages, that comforts others. What is prophecy? Is telling the future or what's the prophecy? It can have two meanings. Well, it really, it, it's, it has two dimensions to it. It can have a dimension of foretelling the future. Uh, today, that's not nearly as widespread or common as it was in the in, in uh, before the scripture was completed, before the canon was closed. It is used much more frequently in the scriptures of proclaiming truth that's already revealed. Let me give you an example. Uh, and this may or may not be helpful, but you know, one of the Old Testament prophets was Jeremiah. You know, that it's a big book in the Old Testament, fifty-two chapters. Okay, Jeremiah is going through the streets of Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar's armies are to the north. And what's he saying? Repent. Repent, Judah, and God will stay the judgment. He'll send Nebuchadnezzar back to Babylon. Where do you get that? Well, it was in the Bible, it was in the Mosaic Law. It was in the Mosaic. Repent if you are following the idolatry, you're worshiping the Baals, you're bringing idols into the, the temple. Repent. That wasn't something God told him verbally. I mean, God did tell him something verbally, but he was was summarizing what the Old Testament was saying. He was proclaiming. Do you follow what I'm saying? And he added, because if you don't, Nebuchadnezzar's armies are going to crush Judah. Now, where did he get that? He got that from God. God said, I will discipline you. But God had laid that all out in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. What he is doing as a prophet he is he is summarizing and proclaiming truth that they already knew. Now, a prophet sometimes does. Daniel does that. Much of his book is talking about the future, even our future, book of Revelation. But typically, Mark, though pro- the verb to prophesy in the New Testament is you are proclaiming truth that's already revealed. And for you and me, it's in this book. The and gospel, so, right? that is a part of it. Mm-hmm. That's a part of the, it's, it's more than that, but that's a, a, a major part of it. So, you see what he's saying here, you see what he's doing. They apparently delighted in this because it is flashy, it's prominent, draws attention to you. Fred spoke in tongues. Oh, I want to speak in tongues. Listen, oh, he's so much more spiritual than I am. And we already know that, but he's evidencing it now.
2: Oh, I'm going to get out of here. Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> so friend. <laughs> Just love and humor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you got it, Woody. You got it. <laughs> All right. Now, do you understand what he's doing? He is shifting now. He's shifting their thinking from that which... Loves to that which edifies. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. But he wants them to think now again about that part of spirituality, spiritual maturity, that deals with the gifts. And he takes them back to chapter 12, verse 7. In exercising your gifts, you always seek to edify. Not to build up yourself. Which actually is a dimension of love, mm-hmm. but he's now getting back to that issue, which presumably was such a comf- controversial issue in the, this this little church at Corinth. Now look at verse three. I, I want to make sure you see this is a. It's actually quite powerful. One who prophesies speaks to men for edification, build up, exhortation, which. To exhort, We don't use a word like that. I can't remember the last time I heard somebody use exhort in a sentence, did you? But another way of thinking of exhortation is to encourage. And then consolation to comfort. You see, truth does that. Truth builds you up. Truth encourages you. Truth comforts you. And if all you do is speak in tongues and you're the only one who knows what's going on, none of that's happening in somebody else's life. But if you're proclaiming truth, what it does is it edifies, it encourages, and it comforts.
1: You're going right from prophesying to equal to that is proclaiming.
0: Right? Exactly. Proclaiming the truth. That's what it means. So, that's what it means, Woody. To quote,
1: something
0: that you've read in the Bible that you believe to be the truth would be proclaimed. That's correct. <clears throat> exactly. <clears throat> um, okay, how can... Let's use an example or two. Um, you have, you know, in your church, you have a, a young family that's lost a child, a baby, you know, in, in birth, or it had some kind of a congenital heart disease, and it it only lived six months. Can the truth of God's Word build them up, encourage them, and comfort them? Mm -hmm. The answer to that is yes. Okay, let's go to the other end of life. You have someone, you know, 88 years old, dying of of, of cancer. Um, Can God's Word build them up Encourage them, comfort them. The answer to that is yes. Uh, in our church, you know, I'm on staff part time at my church now, and uh, we're—it's one of those unbelievable situations. We're working with a couple, and he's just awful. He's just really—he is not doing what he should do as a husband. He's setting all kinds of conditions. He won't love her unless she does this, this, and this, which is totally outside of everything the Bible says about a husband loving his wife. So what do you say to her? What do you say to her? Get a gun and shooting? No. How can she love him? See, that's it. I mean, it's really, really difficult. But can God's word give this young girl, they have two little children, give her something that edifies and encourages and comforts? Yeah. Has God forgotten her? No. Can God give her the strength and the enablement each day to live in an honoring way? Yes. Can your love, can the way you respond to him, can he God use that to bring transformation in his life? Yes, that's what 1 Peter 3 says. Is that easy? No, but it gives. It can build up. It can encourage, comfort. You call, as my wife has done, you call her up on the phone and she shares that it's been a hard day. Okay, let's pray. And and Peggy would read a psalm and then pray. Does that edify? Does that encourage? Does that comfort? Yes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, ten times in that chapter, ten times, the word comfort is used. The comfort that comes from God. And so, the more you think the way God thinks about things, the more you get God's perspective on things, comfort results. How do you get that perspective from this book? And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make this light in any way because this is hard. I mean, it's difficult to consistently live like this and, and, and exhibit this, but that's what he's saying. Seek in your exercise, and he's using just two examples of the prophecy and gifts, but in exercising your gifts, seek to edify, Encourage and, and comfort. And if you speak in tongues and nobody knows what you're saying, you're not doing any. It's an abuse of the gift. And that's why he's going to say, if you have the gift of tongues, it's extremely important that you seek to have that interpreted, or it's not going to do its job. Because you seek that which encourages, comforts, and builds up. And that takes back to what is, I'm going to spend I'm out of time, what's again the theme of chapter 13, that which is loving. All right, we've gotten started on chapter 14. Is, you, we'll, we'll really dig into it next week. Do you have, do you have the perspective? Yeah, the stage is set. The foundation has been constructed. The concrete's been laid. The rebars, okay, I keep... <laughs> trying to use all the metaphors that everybody in <laughs> this table will understand all right let's pray as we've uh, gotten through this father we're grateful for the word of god we're thankful for chapter 13 as we've completed it on uh, this magnificent supernatural unbelievable quality of love help us around this table to uh, be men who exhibit that quality that's not a wimpish, milk-toast way to respond. That is a strong, man-like response to things. That's the way Christ responded to things. Lord, I pray that you'll help each one of us to uh, to let this distill, uh, let it percolate, let it also get deep, deep down into our heart. And God, enable us to live that way. Give us those times of supernatural enablement to exhibit this. Tom illustrated that with his mother-in-law, as he shared that briefly with us. These are supernatural things. We don't necessarily instinctively or intuitively live this way. But uh, we are commanded to do so and what is even more amazing through your spirit you give us the power, the enablement, and the strength to live this way and help us in that area of our lives. So we commit this to you. Commit each one of these men to you and all that they're doing in their busy lives, the with their vocations and jobs, with their responsibilities. Uh, many of them have children, uh, some even grandchildren. Many of them have spouses. All that's a part of those responsibilities, what we've been talking about, intersects with that. It'll help us to do the kinds of things that are honoring to you, and pleasing to you. And Most importantly, as we try to pray each time we're together, Lord, and all we do and all we say, help us to represent you well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.